if we might, let's transition this morning uh, as we continue our series in the book of Mark, and that series is called Incredible. For those of you who have been asking, no, we did not misspell incredible underneath it. That is the Spanish speaking of incredible, okay? There you go, a little mirror image, increíble. And uh, so we've been in this series for several weeks now, and this morning we're going to be preaching from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 29. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 29. And the title of our message this morning is, A Glimpse of Glory. A Glimpse of Glory. So as you turn to Mark 9, 2 through 29, let me ask you a question. Have you ever gone away on a great vacation and glimpsed a little bit of glory? Maybe it was a nice cruise, you got on the ship, you went to some island in the Caribbean, beautiful island, mountains, volcanic mountains that go right down to the ocean and you're swimming in that lagoon, not that I've ever done this, and you're snorkeling, St. Lucia, Uh, or perhaps uh, it's summertime, so Vacations, what I just described, are probably the norm in another city or another country. Or perhaps, you know, summertime is the time for conferences. Maybe your, your, your work has provided for you to get away to a nice convention center in the summer, and, and you're there alone, and you're able to listen, and you're able to learn, and you kind of get everything together. You just have this time away. It's, it's, you get a glimpse of glory. You get some clarity. You're away from the kids. You're away from work. You're away from problems. And you're just focusing and you're getting some great teaching. Or maybe a Christian conference. Uh, a young man in our church just came back from a conference where he was learning theology and apologetics. And it was great. He was away. He was in the mountains of wherever, Tennessee, I think. And, and, and you know, you just get, it's just wonderful. You get a little glimpse of glory. And then right as it's about over, Like maybe the day before you're coming back, this gnawing feeling starts creeping up on you and it gets stronger and stronger and louder and louder. And then you find yourself standing at an airport counter waiting or you're standing in in customs line waiting and suddenly the glory is diminishing a little bit or you're getting off your cruise ship with the rest of the 6,000 people on the ship and you're having to wait a couple of hours and then they finally release you like a pack of dogs to get your luggage. You're, you know, elbowing old ladies and you're trying to find your stuff and You jump in your car and you drive on the Palmetto and as you put your key in the front door and you just kind of throw everything down, this uneasy feeling just explodes on you. I've got hundreds of emails waiting for me. And all the same people, problems, deficiencies, defeats and distractions are right there waiting for me when I go to work tomorrow morning. Well, that's exactly what happened here in Mark chapter 9 verse 2. It happened to Christ's disciples. So let's read about their glimpse of glory. And then let's read about the Lord of glory who led them up the mountain to get a glimpse of glory and then walked with them back down the mountain, metaphorically speaking, back home through the traffic to confront their grief. To confront their grief. And as we read, may we find his encouragement and his strength When we encounter the grief of this world, we encountered it this morning. I encountered it this morning when I received that text from Loida. You may be encountering it in specific ways in your life. The grief of mankind in a fallen world. But let us get that glimpse of the glory of God. So let me pray once more that we would get that glimpse very clearly this morning. 
Father, help us as we read Mark 9, 2 through 29. Lord, give us not just a glimpse of glory, but a long drink of glory that would sustain us as we encounter the grief of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Are you there? Mark 9, verse 2. Open your Bibles. Get your electronic Bibles out. Let's read it, you silently and me out loud, but let's enjoy these words. Mark 9, 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. And as they were coming down the mountain, he, Jesus, charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. You could just see the giant question marks over the disciples' heads as they're walking down the mountain going, what is he talking about? Verse 14. That's the glory. Here's the grief. And when they came to the disciples, the other nine, wasn't going so well for them. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he, Jesus, asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, the other nine, to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Talk about grief. What a a contrast. The glory of, of the mountain and the grief of this poor defenseless boy foaming at the mouth, possessed by a demon. Verse 21, And Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, 
it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What we see in this text, I believe, is summarized in this statement. We see a glimpse of Christ's glory on the mountain in the midst of man's grief, this demon-possessed boy, and it grows our faith. So a glimpse of Christ's glory in the midst of our grief grows our faith. See, this text is about understanding Christ's glory properly so that our faith might grow in the midst of our grief, man's fallen condition here on earth. It's a beautiful text. It's a text that describes Christ's glory that rightly understood builds our faith in the midst of our grief. It's actually an eyewitness account of Peter. It's very detailed. Very, very detailed. So let's look at the first point. Christ's glory. You see... Six days after Jesus' first lesson about what Messiah really means, the suffering Messiah, this occurred in Caesarea Philippi, if you look on the map. Jesus then takes his disciples up from Caesarea Philippi here uh, at the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and he takes them up to Mount Hermon. Now, this is a 9,000-foot peak in the northern section of Galilee. And he's about to give them lesson two on the suffering Messiah. Here on Mount Hermon, Jesus will be transfigured. Do you see that in verse 2? And he was transfigured before them. That word transfigured literally means changed. According to verse 3, his clothes were bleached with the brightest bleach you could ever imagine. Now, in Matthew and Luke's account of the transfiguration, we also know that his face shone. The last time anyone's clothing were were radiant and their face shone was Moses, 1,500 years earlier on Mount Sinai. And I want you to hold in, in your mind this connection between Moses, Mount Sinai, voice of God, his face shining so much that they had to put a veil on it when he came down. And the Exodus, the first Exodus, and Jesus Christ, the greater Moses, the greater prophet, the greater Exodus, whose face is shining on Mount Hermon in the transfiguration. Keep that in mind. God wants us to think about that as we read this. But what do we find out? Not only does Moses show up, but Elijah Elijah shows up. Do you see that? Verse 3. Verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What what were they talking about? Wouldn't you like to be in on that conversation? Okay, first question is, it's Peter's account, right? How in the world does Peter know what Moses and Elijah look like? Like, first of all, I'd be freaked out. I'm on a mountain, and two guys show up with Jesus. Like, my first thought isn't, ha, this must be Moses and Elijah. How does he know? There's no internet, there's no movies, there's no anything. 
I don't know. Next, I just thought I'd throw that out there for you. (laughs) Next, what were they talking about? Well, Mark doesn't tell us what they were talking about, but Luke does. Luke, in his account, says the following here on the screen. Luke 9, 30-31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That word departure in the Greek is the Greek word exodus. Exodus. Yeah. It could also be translated death. I think some versions might translate that death. So they spoke of Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what they're talking to Jesus about is coming down off that mountain of glory, walking to Jerusalem, and experiencing non-glory, experiencing rejection and death and crucifixion. The very thing that Jesus had been teaching his disciples in Caesarea Philippi six days earlier, the very thing that Peter said, No way, Lord! Right after saying, you are the Christ? And Jesus said, yeah, and I'm going to go die in Jerusalem on a cross? Peter said, no, you're not. I rebuke you. And then Jesus rebuked him. And Jesus corrected him because he didn't understand that Messiah meant suffering Messiah first and then triumphant Messiah later. Well, this is lesson two. This is lesson two. So I can just imagine Peter and, and James and John, they're listening to Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus about his death, and they're wondering, why, why can't these guys get it? Don't they understand? Messiah is coming to rule, not to die. Come on, Moses and Elijah. Well, actually, Peter didn't get it. And the reason we know that Peter didn't get it is what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 5. By the way, this is further proof. Verses uh, 5 and 6 are further proof that Peter is Cuban. And Peter said to Jesus, I'm Cuban if you're a guest. Okay, I can say this about my, myself and my peoples. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, for he did not know what to say. So, of course, if you don't know what to say, just open your mouth and say anything. <laughs> Works for me all my life and my relatives and my family. Makes for interesting family reunions. <laughs> What did he just say? I don't know. For they were terrified. But but wait a second. What was Peter doing? Peter's saying, I don't like this talk about coming down off this mountain of glory. I don't like this talk about walking to Jerusalem and dying there. Let's stay here. Let's stay on the cruise. No, forget the 10-day cruise to St. Lucia. Did I mention about St. Lucia? Okay, forget that. I don't ever want to go back there. (laughs) No, no, let's... We're not going back. We're just going to keep cruising the Caribbean. Disney. We're never going to come back from Disney. Right? The vacation. The mountaintop experience. We've got it. Messiah is here. Elijah is here. Moses is here. You're not coming back. So what Peter says is, let's build some tents. Let's build some tents. Let's stay here. He didn't get it. So God helped him get it. God the Father then takes this terrified bunch of three disciples. At the end of verse 6, they were terrified. And he further terrifies them. So if it's not bad enough that you see Moses and Elijah, if not bad enough that Jesus' face is shining, now it gets really dark on this 9,000-foot mountain. Suddenly this cloud creeps over them. (laughs) You could just hear the music. And as if that weren't bad enough, suddenly this voice comes out of the cloud. This... Is my beloved son. That's when you need Charlton Heston right now. 
or, or cow, either one, either voice will work. This is my beloved son, which God had said earlier. It is baptism, but he adds something here because he's talking to the disciples. Listen to him. <laughs> These guys are amazing. I mean, Jesus has just been teaching them that he's going to suffer and die. He's, gonna te- he's teaching them again. They're trying to like say, no, 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 Jesus. No, 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 no. And God's voice comes out and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. What were they to listen to? They were to listen to the fact that the prophets, represented by Elijah and Moses, that the whole Old Testament was thundering down upon them and saying, I came to suffer and die. And they're saying, no, we don't want you to go to Jerusalem. And God's saying, listen to them. Listen to him. Listen to him. See, I want God's glory on the mountaintop. God chooses to reveal his glory on the cross. I I want God's glory in a fully clothed Jesus who is radiant. God chooses to reveal his glory in a naked Jesus who's broken and disfigured on a cross. And you and I would both be correcting everybody. Especially at that time. We are post-resurrection. So we kind of understand it. He didn't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem. Two things I want us to recognize from this text in particular. Number one, it was God's sovereignty to reveal to these disciples who his son was. And to open their eyes and their ears to the glory of Christ. God took them up to the mountain. God opened their ears. God gave them the grace. We can never come to know God on our own. It is God who reveals himself to us and opens our ears and gives us understanding and thank him for that. But secondly, are we listening to him? Are we listening to him? Are we listening to what Jesus is teaching about the necessity of his death on the cross and resurrection from the dead? Or like Peter, are we rejecting it even for our own lives? It's funny, when Jesus talks to them after the voice and after Moses and Elijah disappear, look what he says to them in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Jesus knew that if they went and told everybody what they saw, they would get the wrong idea of his glory. So they had to wait until they had seen him crucified and then seen him raised from the dead. Then they would understand glory. They would understand the very point here that glory, glory is always preceded by suffering in God's economy. They didn't get that. They just wanted the glory right then. They were like a bunch of kids that keep asking you for something when you've said no. Have you ever had that experience? Different ways of asking you. Different times to ask you. Ask you nicely. Ask you not so nicely. That's what Peter and the guys were doing here when they asked Jesus this question. Look at verse 10. So they kept the matter to themselves after Jesus said, don't tell anybody about me until I rise from the dead. But look, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. See, they had a theology of resurrection. That was in the Jewish theology. That's not what they had the problem with. What they had the problem with is what had to precede Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' death. That's what bothered them. 
And you can see that in the question that they asked in verse 11. And they asked him, Hey, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? See, what they're saying is, stop all this talk about you going to the cross in Jerusalem. The scribes say that Elijah comes first and then all things are restored and you rule and reign. So they're asking him again not to go to Jerusalem. They're correcting him again that he's not going to suffer and die. It's a slick way of doing it, but they're still wrong. So Jesus answers them in verses 12 and 13. Yes, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And in fact, Elijah has come. John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they would please. They killed John the Baptist. So if they killed Elijah who came first to restore all things, they're therefore going to kill Messiah as well. I'm Messiah. So he's he's answering their question and he's teaching them. I'm going to die, guys. We're not staying on this mountain. And then he introduces a question to them in verse 12b. How is it written of the Son of Man... That's his favorite term for himself. That he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. What Jesus is doing here is he is referring to all the Old Testament texts. To Isaiah, to Psalm 16, to Psalm 22, to Psalm 110. All of the texts that they did not understand. He's actually referring to the very promise in Genesis 3.15. When God said, the seed of the woman, speaking of the Christ, will bruise will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That very prediction, borne out all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the prophets, is there and they missed it. And, and, and Jesus is saying to them, how is it that Scripture says that the Son of Man, the Messiah, will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? See, they didn't get the point. And here's the point, that suffering precedes glory. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They they got a glimpse of God's glory and they failed to realize that the actual full picture of God's glory would not be on Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet up on a misty morning as they're they're singing Kumbaya with Jesus and Elijah and Moses. The, The vision of God's glory will be down on a hill outside of Jerusalem, a bloodied, messy, dying, gasping, naked Christ. And if that's true for the master, it's true for the disciples. Remember last week, after he teaches them about that, he says, and if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And it's hard for us to get it, isn't it, church? It's hard for us to get it. But I pray we get it. Philippians says it this way, I pray I want to know your death that I might know your resurrection. There is no glory without suffering. There is no resurrection without the cross and death. Point two, man's grief. Good thing that suffering precedes glory because our condition is one of suffering. We experience grief on this earth. We come back off of vacation. We come back from the retreat having caught a glimpse of glory and we descend back into grief. And that is exactly what happened to the disciples. You see, Jesus, having taught the three, lesson two about the fact that he's a suffering Messiah, is now going to teach the twelve a lesson on faith. And he's going to give this lesson on faith to his disciples in the midst of grief, in the midst of their failure, in the midst of disappointment. And he comes up on this chaotic scene in verse 14. 
I mean, here, here the three come from their mountaintop experience, from this wonderful retreat, from this wonderful seminar, from this wonderful vacation, and they descend down Mount Hermon, and what do they find in verse 14? Chaos. They find a large crowd that is arguing. Actually, the scribes are mocking the other, the nine remaining disciples are being mocked by the scribes. Why are they being mocked by the scribes? Well, if you look at the text... They were mocking him because they could not deliver this poor, demon-possessed boy. Look at verse 18b. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So Jesus is going to teach them about faith in the midst, in the context of their failure and disappointment. The crowds are disappointed with the nine. The crowds are saying, well, I thought you guys were the happening group, man. I want to come join your group. The nine had in the past cast out demons. They had healed people. Previously in Mark, we've seen that. But why is it not working? It's not working on this poor boy. He's just crashing around. He's foaming at the mouth. He's grinding his teeth. The father is desperate. I thought this was a church that this stuff happened in. What's wrong with you guys? I'm so disappointed in you. They're like... (laughs) And the scribes are like, (laughs) So, big boy, Jesus, where's his authority? Aren't you doing this in Jesus' name? And they're arguing, and they're arguing, and arguing. And down comes Jesus with the other three. I'm sure Peter, being you know who he is, probably just wanted to go up and fight people. I'll show them, Lord. No, Peter, just be quiet. So Jesus steps up, and he asks them a question. Verse 16. And he asks them, what are you arguing about? He probably asked the scribes, who were very sanctimonious, and they were winning the debate. And so before the scribes could answer, in verse 17, someone from the crowd answered. And now we're going to see this lesson on faith is actually going to occur in a dialogue between Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, God Almighty, the Messiah, and the desperate father of a demon-possessed boy. Here's where we're going to learn about faith. And the context is the absolute failure of his disciples to be who they thought they were already and had already experienced and and their failure to reflect Jesus. And just disappointment. People just mocking them. Where's your Christianity? You guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You guys are weak and powerless. Your, your, Your faith is frail. It's in that context that Jesus is going to give them this lesson. And friends, I'm telling you right now, God normally gives us lessons on faith when we are weak and in our failure. So pay attention if that's where you're at right now. Faith is the lesson. And we're going to see the little bit of faith this father has grow. And in that, Jesus wants us to see today, because the lesson isn't just for the first century disciples, it's for us as well. Our little bit of faith grow. See, God wants to have a conversation with you and me this morning about faith. Our weak faith in a strong Savior. Our faith is on a pilgrimage to grow. Our faith is going to expand here. So beginning in verse 17, the Father, who represents grieving mankind, describes to Jesus not only that the nine disciples were unable to heal his son, but four times in these verses between verse 17 and verse 29, four times the father is going to describe his son's condition. Listen to this description. First of all, he has a demon, a spirit. This demon makes him mute. 
can't speak. This demon seizes him and throws him down. It throws him down into the fire. I can imagine this boy, probably a young man with disfigured face, scars. Maybe half of his scalp has burn marks. His arms are burned. He throws him into the water because the demon is trying to destroy him. And here's a picture of man's grief. We're in a world that tries to destroy us. Have you ever been there? You're caught. You're throwing yourself in the fire. You're doing crazy things. The enemy loves to destroy the image of God. It's heartrending. It's heartrending to imagine and to think of this boy's condition. It's heartrending to think of our condition. And it should be heartrending to think of the condition around, of the people around us in South Florida who are just like this little boy. Being beaten. Thrown on the ground, convulsing, grinding their teeth, mute, dumb. Broken. Satan would love to destroy them. I I love the scripture that says, Jesus says, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. He says in the Gospel of John that Satan came to kill, steal, kill, and destroy, but I came to give life and life in abundance. We see this here. Echoes of this here. But we also see Jesus' humanity. Oh, friends, look what he says to everyone in verse 19. He says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I don't believe Jesus at all was, was exasperated here. I don't. He certainly didn't sin. We know that. He does not sin. I just believe that this is his humanity. Listen, he's just standing there looking at his disciples just like they're like, looking at the crowd, looking at the scribes just like, we want to kill you. These guys are idiots. He's remembering they were just on the mountain where God, his, God the Father, spoke to his disciples, where, where they saw Elijah and Moses, and his face was radiant, and they still don't get it. And he's just being human without sinning. That's what I believe is, is happening there. It's a beautiful picture of the humanity of our Lord. He's fully God, and he's fully man. Praise God. He's tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Back to the narrative. Jesus then asked the Father. This deepens the grief of mankind. He asked the Father, How long? How long has this been happening? Verse 21. How long has this been happening to him? And the Father says, From childhood. So for many, many, many years. Listen. The Father then, in 22b, He just says, Jesus, if you can do anything, Would you please do something? Have compassion on us and help us. Have you ever been there, friends? There's a little bit of faith there. He is asking. There is a little bit of faith. And have you ever been there? Have you ever heard someone utter this plea? Maybe you're uttering it silently this morning. And you're saying, God, God, there's a situation that's been going on for far too long. I can't take it anymore. I can't take whatever it is. Fill in the blank for your life. All of my efforts have failed. The efforts of others have failed. I just, all I see is destruction and pain and and, and hopelessness and failure. I feel like I'm, I'm a failure. Lord, I'm desperate. I cry out to you for mercy and for help. Well, this scripture is here to say, Jesus will help us. He is faithful. He is faithful. Because even though in verse 23, Jesus does bring a little correction, and there's an exclamation point in my text there, and Jesus said to him in verse 23, look at it, if you can, kind of 
giving the man's words back to him. If you can, exclamation point. But then he does give him a lesson on faith and he gives you and me a lesson on faith and he gives his disciples a lesson on faith. All things are possible for one who believes. And the father, I could just see him on his knees. His son is convulsing. He's foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth. It's been going on for years and years. And the father is just saying, I believe. Help my unbelief. Oh, that's a good prayer, church. That's an honest prayer. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This situation has gone from from bad to worse. I've tried everything. It's not working, God. I believe. Help my unbelief. Friends, unbelief is the greatest opposition and obstacle of our life. It's greater than any person in your life, any plight in your life, any power in your life. Our greatest enemy is unbelief. Unbelief. And this father, though, he had just enough faith and he acknowledged that he was weak and failing. Is your faith weak and failing this morning? Are you weary? Has this been going on seemingly, metaphorically speaking, since childhood in your life? Will it ever end? Oh, friend, Jesus knows your condition. He knows my condition. He knows the condition of our church. And he is here to strengthen your faith. Listen, true faith, according to Edwards, is when we are aware of how small, fragile, frail, and inadequate our faith is. The father becomes a believer here. Not when he amasses sufficient amount of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficient faith to the truly sufficient Savior and Lord. And though weak and frail, the father's faith is looking in the right direction and asking the right person for help. There's some days I'm walking, I'm running toward the Lord. There's some days I'm walking toward the Lord. There's some days I, I, I'm just kind of shuffling toward the Lord. There's some days I'm just, I'm facing toward the Lord. There's some days I'm on my face. I'm just beaten down, man. But at least I'm facing the right direction and I'm looking to the right person. Amen. Let us all do that, church. The rest of this text is glorious. He heals the son. Tells him, bring him here. The spirit tries one more tactic of throwing the little boy down. Making him convulse. Jesus says, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. Puts a no trespassing sign on the little boy. Heals him. (laughs) It was so intense and the boy was so still. The people thought he was dead. But he picks the boy up. Listen, mirroring his own resurrection. Picks the boy up and raises him up. The resurrection in life. Jesus is the resurrection in life. Gives that little boy life. Gives him back to his father. The lesson's almost over. As always, he takes the disciples away. The last verse. They're walking into wherever they were walking into. (laughs) They're just shaking their head going, what was that? As soon as the door closes... I don't know who it was. doesn't say it was Peter, but you know, um, my money's on Peter. Hey, why could we not cast it out? Jesus says to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Verse 29. What is he teaching us here? He's teaching us this. The very thing we just read. Even though your faith is weak and small and inadequate, acknowledge it and put your faith, risk it all in a little bit of faith, and the one who is strong and big and powerful and adequate, he will hear you. And prayer is just 
getting close to God. God may have you in this place right now that you're just clinging to him. You're just holding on to him. I'm coming to you. I'm running to you, Lord. I'm on my face. I can't even walk anymore. But I'm facing you, and I will never stop. I will have to actually be killed before I stop believing. It's small, Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. Isn't that what he's doing, church? He's deepening us right now. And our faith is our most precious possession. It's God's gift. He gives it to us, then he matures it through trials and tribulations. Here's the point. Your failures point you to your Father in heaven who will provide for you as you depend on him in prayer. Your failures point you to your Father in heaven who will provide for you as you depend on him in prayer. Our weak faith is in our strong Savior. In the midst of our suffering church and shame, let us look to the cross and the resurrection and the glory of Christ. We will never understand the gospel unless we understand the cross and the resurrection. The cross is at the center of the gospel, is at the center of the gospel message. The disciples unwittingly wanted to remove it from the center and they just wanted the glory without the cross. Jesus says, no, can't happen. The cross must precede the glory. The resurrection, the ascension, in the midst of your disappointment and failure, Look to your all-sufficient Lord who leads you to dependence in Him, growing your faith. Let's pray. Worship team, please join me up front. Father, I pray that in the midst of disappointment and failure that many may be experiencing right now at Palm Vista. Lord God, I pray that as we look, metaphorically speaking, at this boy who's been thrashed for years, thrown into fire and water, The enemy has sought to destroy him. We can feel that about our lives, our dreams, the things that we are devoting ourselves to, our families, even our relationships, our children, whatever. Lord God, I pray that you would give us now faith. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Lord, reveal your glory. Lord, it's hard for us to believe that your glory is revealed most fully at the cross and in the resurrection. But that's what you teach us. Help us to listen when we're going through our own cross, when we're bearing that cross you called us to bear. It's hard through the pain, Lord, through the tears. It's hard. But Lord, give us a picture of that day. And may it inform this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, church, and let's sing this as a confession. There is a day.